When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the Tom Bernard Show.com brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> I'd like to know if I was married to a whore piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) You could just look at her license. My special stripe. That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. (laughs) (laughs) It's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. <laughs> We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are, and you know we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice, and they go from there, and then call us back later. But the key is, is that they don't know all their rights, or they're not told all the rights by the adjuster. And that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding, uh, so they can help themselves and their families as best they can. And the number is is eight hundred seven seven zero seven zero zero eight. Or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean, Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured, Brad, Sean, Bryant. episode of the best of the Tom Bernard podcast brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Kicking off the show this week, we have Eric Rivenis talking about the topic of his new book, Dirty Doc Ames in a Dark Side of Minneapolis History, next on the best of... Make some of the good times, Melina. Oh, this is uh, We Are Family. Oh, I thought it was good times. These are the good times. Well, it's they're the exact same yeah, song. Yeah, they're kind of the same <laughs> song. 
I mean, it's the exact same song. We are, we are family. Why are you playing We Are Family? Uh, siblings Day. Uh, that's true, it is Siblings Day. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Rivenis talking about the book Dirty Doc Ames. Well, no, Eric, you can't get We already have Dirty Doc Basham. There you so. Thank you. Right. <laughs> he goes, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis, the story of a mayor and his police department run amok and of the stunning political collapse that helped launch the progressive era, the story of Albert Alonzo Doc Ames is perhaps the greatest political scandal in Minnesota history. As mayor of Minneapolis, Ames exposed the city to national humiliation, helped jumpstart an era of reform. So it's his fault that Minnesota's nuts. <laughs> it, it was a temporary era of reform. Uh, Kid Can would eventually move in, and uh, the Jewish gangster syndicate. That's what I and, thought. Yeah, it would all go downhill again one more time. That's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, tell me the story of Dirty Doc Ames. This stuff fascinates me. Oh my goodness! It's such a it's such an epic story, and it, it was really hard to get it into this this book. I had limitations as to how much I could actually write. But I mean, this guy was a was was quite a character. I mean, he he was a politician for 25 years. He started as a Republican, switched switched to the Democratic Party, then became a populist, then became an independent, and then finally somehow weaseled his way back into the Republican Party for his final fourth <laughs> term as mayor. And oh it was God. this epic rise and fall of this this guy who was just so narcissistic, so arrogant. On one hand, had incredible political ambitions, but at the same note, he, he was a, a medical doctor and he was, was some say he was one of the, the, the best surgeons in Minnesota. And he... Um, donated his, his medical time for free. Um, he, he saw patients that couldn't afford to pay, and he was able to build up this base of followers based on that. Um, they were called the Dinner, Dinner Pale Brigade, this group of followers who would follow him to, to hell and back. And he used that, that following to, to get, his, get himself into his final term as mayor of Minneapolis in 1901. Uh, he took advantage of something called, um, well, the Minnesota legislature passed a, a, a direct primary law, which basically said, finally, ringsters, um, old-time Tammany Hall-style politicians cannot control Republican and Democratic, you know, endorsements. The primaries are open to everyone. So he took his following, and um, the Republican Party was not very happy about this, <laughs> but he, he ran, and he actually, um, be, he actually got the endorsement as, as the Republican candidate for mayor in 1900. And then he went in, he proceeded to fire half of the police force. He filled them with criminals, with people who had supported him, um, gave them all plum positions. And then proceeded in the next year and a half to, to make as much money as he possibly could um, before he was finally taken down. No, somebody that was greedy? Hard to believe. I've never heard of that before. God. Yeah. Uh, this is a fascinating story. Yeah, I have to ask you a question. This this is not directly related to your story, but I suppose in a way it, it may be. 
Uh, and, and then somebody did ask me a question. Joe uh, asked me the question, did he just say Jewish mobster? Yes, the organized crime in Minnesota was not Italian. It was Jewish. And a guy named Kid Can Blumenfeld was uh, the man who ran the whole show. Actually, Bugsy Siegel spent a lot of time in Minnesota mm-hmm. because of Kid Can. People don't know that. They don't know that that's the truth. Right, exactly. Yeah, and he would come in the 1920s and 30s. And he, yeah, the the Jewish the Jewish mob ran Minneapolis, and the yep. the Irish ran, you know, St. Paul, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they ran St. Paul. That's exactly right. But I, I have to ask you a question because you look, you know, very knowledgeable of politics. I was born in Long Prairie, Minnesota. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, mostly on the north side. What is it about Minnesotans? Why are we so different from the rest of the country that we're not just Democrats, we're Democrat farmer laborers? We're not just Republicans, we're independent Republicans. <laughs> why do we have to be different than everybody else out there? Why is that with medicine? What is that? Well, I think from what I remember, and that's a really good question, um, I think the ind- people, I, I think that the GOP became independent Republicans because the Democrats became the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, and they wanted their own right. their own unique identity as well. But yeah, the DFL is basically a combination of two parties, the Farmer Labor Party and the Democratic Party, that, that finally combined right. and joined forces, yeah. But every place else, they're Republicans and they're Democrats. Nope, not in Minnesota, they're not. No, 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 no. <laughs> I guess we Actually, like to be special, yeah. Well, with, with the hist- we do like to be special. With the history of 12-step recovery in Minnesota, they should have been the dependent Republicans, rather independent, the dependent Republicans. Yeah, there you go. Or codependent good Republicans. Idea. <laughs> we had Minnesota uh, was one of the few states, I suppose if you dug deeper, you would find out we wouldn't be one of the few states, but we were one of the few states who had a card-carrying communist as a governor, governor that Floyd B. Olson was a communist. And people, I don't think, realize that. That... Um, all the way back then, and that was that was just after this era you're talking about, wasn't it? Wasn't he governor just after 1900? Yeah, yeah, in the in the 1930s, um, he he helped. 1930s, um, yeah. yeah, during the Minnesota or the, the the infamous Minneapolis truck strike in 1935. Right, and just before, he died of cancer, um, but there were rumors that he was going to be um, FDR's vice presidential uh, candidate. Right, um, but then he died, and of course. Then he died, unfortunately. But they still have a statue there on Highway 55, Olson Highway. (laughs) Back when I was at the University of Minnesota, yeah, um, I took a history class taught by High Berman, I think his name was. I don't know if you... you, High Berman, sure, I know High Berman. And he he said that Floyd B. Olson was a a big-time partier and carouser and had a cabin up north. No. Yeah, I I remember that distinctly. (laughs) Yeah, he he definitely liked um, to let loose, for sure. So... So, Dirty Doc Ames and the scandal that shook Minneapolis. What was the first year that he was mayor of Minneapolis? He was first uh, mayor of Minneapolis in 1876. Um, He He was mayor for 25 years? Yeah, four terms, 1876, 1884. 1886, he almost became governor. He he was like a half a percentage point uh, away from becoming governor. Really? Yeah, I mean, he was... He's, he's a really, really complicated character, a really, really fascinating guy. I mean, it's like a du- dual personality. He was so compassionate to the poor on one hand, but then he was so 
politically ambitious and so full of himself almost to the point of delusion you know um it, it's he had a really interesting love-hate relationship with the press and and when he we he became mayor in 1901 for this final fourth term he surrounded himself with the the biggest bunch of idiots and criminals i mean you can imagine <laughs> What, he he chose as as captain as a captain of a police a guy by the name of Coffee John Fichette uh, and Coffee John Fichette owned um, and operated a restaurant called uh, Coffee John's Oyster Grotto on Nicollet Avenue and he was he was um, he had been um, his head had been injured um, by some um, sh- um, some shrapnel during the Civil War and he Ooh. yeah he had this crazy swing i mean as far as his temperament goes and whenever anyone complained about the food in his restaurant i mean he would like beat them on the streets of minneapolis <laughs> he would chase after them <laughs> at one point he somebody said refused to pay or, or didn't want to pay for for um something that they had that they had ordered and he he and his wife locked them in the restaurant and wouldn't let them out until they paid but he was the the captain of police and and he had no police experience i mean he just one of these guys that that were in, in um doc ames inner circle and his job was to sell police positions so if if a police officer if a guy wanted to be a cop on the police force um they came to him they had to pay him $200 i believe and he would pass that on to doc ames doc ames and so they so guys that wanted to be on the force actually had to to pay and $200 is a lot of money in 1901 when the average oh, yeah. salary for a for an officer, I think, was about a thousand dollars a year, so that's a substantial amount of money that they were, and that was just one way that they were making money. They were in collusion with with uh, gamblers. Um, they were inviting gamblers, professional gamblers, all from across the country, the best gamblers, to come into town and to set up con games, where they would fleece rubes suckers from that were coming in from out of town, and then they would split the money with with. Um, Doc Ames, his brother, his brother was the chief of police. <laughs> if that's right, not if that's right. not nepotism, I don't know what is. You know, and he was a disgraced uh, officer um, of the 13th Minnesota, um, supposedly disgraced. I, I think I prove in the book that he wasn't he wasn't the coward that people made him out to be, but he was part of the famed 13th Minnesota during the Spanish American War that stormed the the uh, town of Manila and and b- when we basically took. Um, the Philippines back from the Spanish, and then started fighting the Filipino insurgents. So his his brother was the the chief of police, and he was this um, vacillating kind of weak weak willed character that that had no business running a police department. So it's just this crazy cast of characters that he surrounds himself with that, and everything just implodes, you know. And and Doc Ames eventually goes on the run. He becomes a fugitive. <laughs> so so part yeah, of the book is yeah, part of the book is just is is following his his escapades and the the county sheriff's department sent deputies after him and were chasing him around and it's just nuts. When did the big milling era in Minnesota start? Wasn't that was that in the mid eighteen hundreds? Yeah, yeah, that was. So, uh, yep. The, the last half yeah, of the, the 19th century. Yeah. So right, right, right after, right after Minnesota became a state. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Became so a really, state. this this was all going on where Minnesota or Minneapolis, Minnesota was all sort of Wild West kind of thing. All these things were just starting right. here. There was not a huge population. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And in Doc Ames, there was tons of them. 
Doc Ames came with his family when he was just a boy. He was one of the first 12 families in what is now Minneapolis. So he saw Minneapolis from the very, very beginning. He, he came in uh, the early, early 1850s when there was like no one here, and Minneapolis was a tiny village. Yeah. Where did he come from? From Garden Prairie, Illinois. His, his father was... Oh, from do- Illinois. Yeah, his father was Dr. Alfred Elisha Ames, who was actually worked for Stephen Douglas who was the, the famed um, um, senator from Illinois that, that had the, the, you know, the, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, of course, are famous now. So his father had been a, a longtime uh, Democrat, and he became a Republican. But he, he kind of swayed with the, with the breeze, you know? He, he only became a, a, a Democrat because the Republicans didn't, didn't want to give him the endorsement for his, his first term as mayor. So the Democrats were like, hey, you're, pop, you're a popular guy. Come on over here, you know? <laughs> so so yeah. did, did they? Did these people all arrive in Minnesota at about the same time because uh, the lumber industry, the milling industry, uh, the, you know, the, the growth of wheat, the Mississippi was right there. To this day, if you go down the Mississippi, Catherine and I took a trip down the Mississippi on a, on a riverboat, uh, what a year and a half ago now, something like that. Oh, that's cool. And y- you do realize Mississippi River is owned by the Cargills. Oh. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, so did they? Did they anticipate all this with the, with the milling and the the farming and the lumber and all the re- that this was going to be because of the Mississippi River? This was going to be a very very wealthy port, a very wealthy city, Paris cities, whatever. No, right away they didn't. But I mean, St. Anthony Falls when they first arrived was considered one of the one of the great wonders, natural wonders of the United States of America. It was absolutely gorgeous. Oh, really? Yeah, and there was a little a little island called Spirit Island that sat just below the falls. Yeah. That was, um, you know, um, that the Native Americans considered a sacred site. And not long after they came, you know, it, um, like we were talking about, eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, they started to. To, to get that St. Anthony Falls and turn it into this, you know, it started building sawmills and gristmills all around the area right. and, and just completely transformed it, yeah. And destroyed it, basically. Destroyed it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Pillsbury, the Pillsbury's made their fortunes, you know, here. Oh, and, yeah. And a Pillsbury actually ran against Doc and beat him um, after a second term. So the Pillsbury's are part of this, this story, too. We will be right back more with Eric Rivenis right after this Tom Bernard show. Best of the Tom Bernard podcast. Back to the city and back to my life. Back to the city and back to life. Back to the city. Get me back to Minneapolis. Oh, Minneapolis. That was Eric Rivenis on the best of. Coming up next, Mike Kaplan was in studio, and he just really, really couldn't get enough winter this year, so he came here to do some comedy. Next! On 26th Street, I was 20 years old. I dreamed about my first first Avenue show. I skipped a lot of stones through the... Send in the clowns. Not the ones with guns, though. Isn't it bliss? What a voice. You know, I just don't hear singers like this anymore. 
All right, we're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom, we'll be back with you on Monday, sitting in studio with me from Acme Comedy Club this weekend. Mike Kaplan. Mike, uh, what time are the shows? Uh, tonight at 8 and 10.30, and uh, tomorrow, Saturday, at 8 and 10.30. Cool. So there are a few tickets still available. Can they find it online at Acme Comedy Club? I think it's acmecomedycompany.com, and I'm sure that you can go online, get tickets, and uh, and, and or call the club. Or I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know how many are left, but get them quick. I don't know. You I, are. They didn't tell me. <laughs> You're a lucky man, right? Oh, you just came here from uh, New York, which is now, what, at 76 degrees? Yeah, thank God. I, I love winter. I love being cold and rained on and having it be like a snow emergency. I don't even know if I might be here forever. There's a, could a be. storm coming. When, I like, you know, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. Winter is here. Yes. So. Yeah, and it doesn't leave Minnesota. No. It holds us, and it's tightly iced talons. Like a zombie. At least the good thing is Minnesotans will go out. We, we're not afraid of going out and having fun on a, on a snowy, crappy day. I actually sincerely hadn't thought of that. That's wonderful. Yeah, you could go to like you know the, somewhere in the south where it's normally warm all the time and mm-hmm. it rains a little bit, and you're like, well, I guess everybody's uh, staying in. The, it's a ghost town. Afraid. It's. I love that scene from. I think it was what was it about two three years ago, Mike, when Atlanta got an inch and a half of snow and it looked like uh, The Walking Dead. Ha. Oh yeah. Did you see that, Mike? I I, I forgot. I got two mics here. Oh yeah. There was they they got like I think it was an inch inch and a half of snow and they were showing video footage and everybody in minnesota was laughing hysterically because cars are pulled off to the sides of the road people are huddled and they're sleeping in 7-elevens people wouldn't go down the highway because they couldn't drive in the inch inch and a half of snow and they were eating each other because yeah, they couldn't exactly. get to the grocery Very store much yeah like that uh so you get you get to travel and see all over the world i do yeah where's the where's the far the farthest reaches you've gone now uh i went to australia a couple of years ago oh very cool uh that was fun to be a part of the melbourne comedy festival and this summer i get to go to i'm gonna be doing a show at the edinburgh fringe fest over in scotland so that'll be exciting i go to canada a fair amount i've been to alaska i think that's like the farthest north that i've been yeah but that's just parts of america really you're right yeah. i'm sorry that i answered your question in a boring way uh well, i flew over parts of canada i went to peru once uh that was that was exciting i did not do comedy there no no, I would guess that would be hard to translate. Uh, I mean, I would, I would, I could definitely talk right. uh, in the the English language that I speak, and probably, I mean, there's certainly more people. Uh, whenever I travel anywhere that English isn't the uh, the the number one language, right. th- there's way more people that understand me than I understand them. So, right, that's uh, what we find. You know, I go, I'm going to Romania this September ah. with a bunch of our listeners, and we're going to go kind of follow all of these haunted trails of, of where Vlad the Impaler was known to exist. Ooh, sure. That's like the castles and the, such. The Dracula inspiration. Right. right. And they said, uh, the, the, they were funny, the guides are like, listen, don't be the ugly Americans here because they may not speak English, but they understand it very clearly and they know exactly what you're saying and you really just don't want to be that guy in this country. Especially if you are doing a horrible Romanian accent pretending. Right. Don't tell them that you vaunt to do anything. <laughs> no. I, and actually, in Romania, the people that do speak English are more clear and easy to understand than when I've been to Ireland and Scotland when they're speaking English. I have no clue what three-quarters of the conversations I had while I was out and abroad. This podcast brought to you by Romania. <laughs> Everybody, check out Fly Romania. Live in Romania. Enjoy. Now, Ro- Romania? Ro- I don't even know if I'm saying it right. My apologies. Go, Romania. GoRomania.com. What... Uh, it's are, Romania mania here. Are you are you uh, superstitious at all? I know a lot of entertainers kind of carry some of that with them. 
I guess that I would... Uh, short answer, no. And I don't know whose joke this is, but long answer, no. <laughs> that somebody, somebody's really funny and said that, and I don't remember who it is, and whoever you are, good work. But, I mean, I guess we, I feel superstitions when you think about like you know if you walk under a ladder or if you oh i'm, I'm looking at the atlanta, that atlanta. uprising <laughs> week, a couple of years ago um i think that there's no way to know like if there's anything specific like you know if you were wearing certain clothes and a thing happened like right. you know there's certainly all kinds of things that happen that are coincidences that you don't know about what might be you know the reasons for things that so i guess what superstitions do you like what's an example of a superstition that you'd like to know about and the answer is probably no i'm not well i'm just yeah i'm curious because I've, I've come in contact with a lot of entertainers over the years and and i've watched them prior to them going out to either sing or perform or do comedy and sometimes they've got rituals that they do prior to what they they'll always go up and they'll start with a glass of scotch before they go out on stage mm. or they have to have two bottles of evian separated by six inches on the stools and you're like what and he's like dude i'm just telling you every time it has not been that way my show goes to hell in a handbasket and here's what i would say about that is i mean i do have some like rituals or traditions in my like daily experience like i get up and i meditate for 20 minutes most mornings unless there's some reason if i have to catch an early flight or have to do something you know go get up early for radio and then maybe i'll do it later but that for me is not a matter of superstition it's a matter of you know there's it actually does something like for me for my consciousness for and if I didn't do it, I might not feel the same way that I did if I did do it, but I don't think it's a matter of luck. And so similarly, I think if you have things that have comforted you, you know, if having, you know, a certain talisman or bottle of water or, you know, crystal or so whatever it is that makes you feel the way that it makes you want to feel, uh, if you don't have that thing, then you don't have that feeling. And that feeling could be the thing that makes you feel like you aren't having the experience that you wish you would like it, it could be you know a kind of placebo effect or a self-fulfilling right. prophecy that you know, so it's not to say that not having the thing caused you know somebody in the audience to be a bad audience member but it could just affect your you know your mood and your psyche and your emotional state which is also a powerful thing so i think that like the same way that you know we might not have free will but it makes sense to act as though we do just because just in case we do it's good to act like we do <laughs> uh but if we don't and you're like well i guess i'm just gonna lay here that well, then you were fated to lay there. Well, get up and do pretend like you're doing whatever you want to do. And, you know, it's a kind of like fake it until you make it thing. Right. And, you know, because otherwise, if it's all fake, then it doesn't matter what you do. And but if it isn't all fake, then it does matter what you do. So why not do the things that you want to do and that make you feel good? And as long as it's not, you know, a uh, as far as your rituals go, if they're like if it's like, yeah, I just put I put the water here like fine. Great. I don't I'm not going <laughs> to tell anyone not to put water where they want to put water. Uh, but if they you know, if it if it causes them great degrees of, uh, you know, oh, uh, you know, like I, I want people to feel good, feel good and uh, comfortable and fulfilled. And if your rituals help you do that, then wonderful. And if they don't, hey, do whatever you want. Now, it kind of surprises me that you do meditation mm -hmm. because a lot of entertainers I know and and uh, engage with their minds going a thousand miles an hour. I can't quiet. I've tried meditation on numerous accounts and, and I can't get my mind to shut up. I can't, it's just constant chatter. Whether I use like guided meditation oh, yeah. and you've got that, you're on a nice plane and the clouds are surrounding you. There are no troubles in the world. And then my mind starts going, well, there is a fact I haven't paid my electric bill. Is that late yet? And I can't shut that, that motor off. Do you have trouble with that? Or is that what's trained you so uh, that you can maybe I, plug in a little bit better to the creativity. I would say uh, that 
I was like, I, I used to think that I wouldn't be able to, mm-hmm. you know, sit still, do whatever I, the stereotype or the caricature of meditation that I thought it was. I didn't know what it was. I was like, why do I want to sit and just be quiet when I'm, you know, there are always things to do and places to go and, you know, t- bad TV shows to watch. Like, I can't <laughs> meditate for 20 minutes. I have to put my, put crap in my mind. And, uh... Now, now I'll watch one fewer bad TV show a day and meditate. <laughs> but sincerely, uh, like the the guided meditation that I use is the app Headspace, uh, which is basically this guy you know gives you. There's different packets that you can do, mm-hmm. um, but the the initial one, he's basically. I think it's really good for. It was good for me as a person who'd never meditated for him to be like, "This is. I'm just going to tell you like you know to, how to sit. You know, like sit basically sit sitting up in a comfortable way and breathe." And then focus on your breath and sometimes visualize things, but mostly like in the beginning, it's like just focusing on breathing in and breathing out. And then he's like, if you get distracted, that's okay. Just note when you get distracted, if you're like, oh, I got distracted, now I'm back. Like, and it's a matter of sort of, you know, getting to this clear blue sky that exists within you and like all of your thoughts and emotions and ideas and things that come across your, you know, consciousness's view. Those are like clouds and you can just like, oh, there's that cloud and let it pass. Like, there's that one and let it pass. And then eventually, like, like, I think for me, it has helped, like, train me to, like, be able to do that in life, to not, you know, dwell in things that I can't deal with at the time, or, you know, just be like, well, that is something that I'll address later. And I specifically, I went, I had a massage a couple days ago, uh, and it, I don't have massages frequently. I probably had, like, you know, a single-digit number in my entire life. <laughs> right. But I remember the first one I ever got was probably, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Like, I just started doing comedy, maybe, and was, I remember being anxious about the fact that I wouldn't have like my notebook or my recorder that I'm like, I'm going to be lying here for like 45 minutes, at least 45 minutes, an hour. And I'm, I usually have thoughts that I want to record. I usually have, I, what if I have an idea? I don't want to forget it. I don't want to lose it. And so I remember thinking about that during that time. And it, it sort of, you know, was counter to the idea of the massage of, which is to relax, you know, to make me feel, you know, calm and comforted and good. And I was like, what if I think of things? Oh no. (laughs) And, uh, I feel good now that, you know, like a decade later, uh, after some meditation practice, after some growth, uh, just, you know, personally, and other experiences that led me to a place where during this massage, I now I now understand that also every time that I meditate, I don't, if I have a thought that is like, oh, that could be a joke idea or like a life philosophy thought or some something that I might want to remember, I'm like, well, if it's, I'll either remember it or I won't. And if I don't remember it, when, when I get out of the massage or out of the meditation state, then that's fine. I won't even remember that I forgot it. I won't even know that it existed, and that's okay. And if it was, like, a valuable, important thing, then probably a lot of those I will remember. I'll be like, what did I think? Oh, yeah, that's the thing that I thought. And I can also sort of now have... I don't know, like I have, I've read about memory palaces, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, ways you can visualize things to not forget them. And for me, sometimes I, like, I think while I was at this massage, I thought of, like, four things... And they, they started with, the first three started with the letters like B, N, and K. And then I thought of one that started with A. And I'm like, just remember bank. That's all I have to remember is bank. And then at the end of my session, I could remember the four things that I wanted to that I thought over the course of that hour. And if I hadn't, that would have been okay as well. Wow, look at you, Zen master. I mean... Do you I, find after you're done with these uh, meditations, does your creativity seem to come a little bit more easily? Maybe you're not as clouded, you, you're just more open and into it to it? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not positive because I've, creativity has never been, uh, like, you know, the problem. Like, mm-hmm. I've never really had, like, writer's block. Like, I feel like I thought, like, maybe 
a few years into comedy, I came up with a great joke and then didn't come up with what I thought was as good a joke for like months. And I was like, was that it? Is that the last great joke that I'm ever going to write? And, you know, like <laughs> three months later, I, I, you know, over the it's sort of always an ongoing process where I'm like, oh, the thought that I had two weeks ago now becomes a, a great joke that I make, you know, two months from now. And so I can't just be, you know, evaluating every moment. Is this better? Is this is this good? Is this good enough? Because that's going to, you know, drive me. Uh, bonkers. And do, do you ever get a, a, like that gem, that germ of a joke, and you're like, yes, yes. And you come to Minnesota, and you haven't been to Minnesota before, and the the opening guy comes out and does a joke, and and almost hits exactly the same topic, and you're like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? And then I just have that guy, uh, you know, silently taken care of by a uh, clone. Yeah, <laughs> I dress up, and uh, I've said too much, but uh, certainly, I mean, I think the idea before I like, I mean, I tweeted something the other day and about gun control and some. But he was like, hey, Jim Jeffries did that in his special. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I, I won't tweet it again. And I won't say it out loud because I didn't know that that particular thought had been said. Like, there's so many of us. There's so right. many comedians coming up with so many ideas all of the time. Like, it would be ridiculous for this to not happen. So exactly. I, I feel like the goal is to for it to not to be... You know, for me to not be too precious about like this is the idea that's gonna send me skyrocketing. This is the number. <laughs> like also like most of the ideas that I have, you know, are coming from my own. Uh, you know, I, this is a weird thing to say, like my own experience. But obviously, everybody is right. you know a human being experiencing not all similar things. But uh, I can I do my best to make everything my own and a thing that wouldn't be a thing that other people would say. Even though, of course, like for social justice issues or for you know those kinds of things that were you know people who are against racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia like we're you know everybody's drawing from the same pool of you know of topics uh so it might be that you come up with this if if there's a lot of people coming up with the same ideas about how to make society and the world and humans you know kinder uh then i'm fine and i'm, I'm okay with that I, right. the, people yeah. can have those if you come up with a great joke about how to encourage kindness then i'm uh, i'm not going to be mad at you well and then listen comedians live kind of off of topical situations right not only your own life situations but what's going on in the world around you it would sure. be almost impossible to not have these kind of mental collisions where you're going to kind of be creative in the same vein as others it can be so but at least, thankfully, we have our families and dysfunctional lives to fall back on to make it our own, right? Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> and also, we're all one, so all the ideas that we have are all of ours. Exactly. Let's. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then uh, we're going to be joined by uh, the guys from Dread Central. Great. Your horror movie uh, source for all the greatest ideas and what's going on in the world of horror, sci-fi, and, and action-adventure. And then we'll uh, we'll chat with them about that. And the movies, are you, are you timed out? Can you stay here with us into the next hour a little Happy bit? Happy to stay. Excellent. We'll do that. And you can check out Mike Kaplan at Acme Comedy Club tonight and tomorrow. Go check out the information online. We'll have a link up for it as well. Stay tuned. We've got more coming your way. I'm Dave Schrader, and this is The Top Nard Show. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go play him. I like it, bum bum damn. Take the man that says that I'm a stormy, stab somebody on the land. I like it, bum bum damn. Informer, you know, say that I'm a stormy, I go play him. I like it, bum bum damn. Take the man that says that I'm a stormy, stab somebody on the land. I like it, bum bum damn. That was Mike Kaplan on the best of. Coming up next, closing out the show, we're opening up the All the way back to episode 360 with AWA legend Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Next. 
Palmer, you know, say that I'm a snowman, I go play I like it, boom, boom, now Take the man, I say, say that I'm a snowman, stop somewhere Do you know why a gym got the, tur- the name Jumpin' Jim Brunzel? No, I do not. Because he was a college high jumper. Record holder. What, what college? Well, actually, I, I was a high school uh, record holder. What at, high school? Uh, White Bear Lake. Oh, okay. And um, <clears throat> I used to have a real close friend. His name was Nick Hartzell. Oh, we grew Nick up Hartzel. together. He went to Notre Dame yep. and uh, broke his ankle his freshman year, so didn't play. But uh, he was six four and a half at 12 years old, and I was like five seven. And we used to play basketball all the time on Saturdays, and he used to be able to, you know, rebound and everything. And sure. I, I told him, I said, one of these days, Nick, I'm going to be able to dunk. So I kept jumping and jumping and jumping. And uh, uh, Joe Suchere tells a story. He was also in our eighth grade class at St. Oh, Jude's okay. of the Lake in Montemita. Right. He said that I used to, uh, during a, a given point of the day, pull up my pants leg and flex my calf muscle <laughs> <laughs> to show him that that I was, you know. But I, I, I was I was gifted uh, in that I could could jump and um, you know I was I like high jumping and it, it just was a natural thing for me to you know Vern Gagne said to me do you think you can hit your hit my hand with your feet so he, he put his hand out about oh, here and by the end of the day his hand was up here and I, I could drop kick his really? hand yeah but that story that story that you said about uh, showing your uh, calf when yes. you were 12 years old that's the show. That's the that's the show in professional wrestling. That's a part of it. You just had that. It was, it's probably genetic for you, really, because that's that's because that's part of the part of the um, the entertainment, part of the excitement, and part of the build up to the match. I mean, you're always you know, there's always sort of posturing and everything like that. That well, I think I think that's a lot more now. So with Vince McMahon, because he, you know, uh, in ni- 1982 or so, when he took over for his dad, his dad passed away. He projected a, a pro wrestling which he envisioned mm-hmm. and he envisioned muscular young men that he could find a way to make as much money out of as possible yeah. so he everybody looked the same you know not everybody but some guys could you know uh, put on more mass and look better but he he had an affinity for a bodybuilding type wrestler and consequently he made you know guys a lot of money that were extremely muscular and that had no uh, bearing on what they could do in the ring yeah but boy i remember bruno san martino one time he was talking and he got all worked up started eating the microphone that's when i was a kid oh, so yeah. so it, it was around then they had a, oh, yeah. they had to have oh, a little I bit of build up on well, these the matches otherwise it's not, it's not <laughs> as much fun it's that's not, right that's yeah, to be right. honest with you it it kind of ruined it for me because when i grew up and you guys were wrestling i could still go you know maybe i i might want to do that but when you see these guys six six and you know two hundred and ninety pounds and it's all muscle, it's like I don't think I could do that. <laughs> you know? I think that, and I don't watch wrestling yeah. very much anymore. But uh, occasionally I see it, and what what uh, what I see is f- people in the ring doing all these magnificent moves with all these uh, athletic right. uh, moves, yeah. and you know high whatever you want to call them, and none of them mean a thing because the guy goes down, the guy doesn't even cover him, and the guy pops right up like nothing happened. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and what were we watching the other day? The Ring of Honor. It was in Florida. They were oh. they were smaller guys, but the stuff they could do yeah, they could was do amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, they're like acrobats. Well, yeah, they, are. they really yeah. were. Now, you, 
uh, you know, when you remember back when you were killer bees, yes, right? First guys to wear masks. That was a great gimmick. Yeah, first oh, guys really? ever to really? wear masks in the ring. That's I didn't right. Know that. And we yeah. were baby faces. Brian, Brian, right? Right. Brian Blair okay. from Tampa, Florida. You guys pissed me off so bad. Why? So I'd watch you, <laughs> and you guys would do the shittiest things. You. Yes, you would do the shittiest things because oh, you would change. Oh, we're just getting back at all these guys. When the referee, when the referee, when the referee had his back turned, they would switch matches, masks, masks, and so they never knew who the tough guy was in the joint. And it was I love that. Just was absolute cheating. It was, I, it was terrible I cheating. It was it was I, the greatest. I hated that. Don, it was the greatest gimmick that at that time a young. Uh, you know, sort of smaller tag team like Brian and I, we were both about 225, had that, you know, we could do a lot of stuff in the ring. But the fact that we could put those masks on was a great gimmick, <laughs> you know, and, and I'll show you how much Vince McMahon liked us. You know, when you have something like that, you want to protect it. You know, you don't want to overdo it. You want to keep it for special times. Right. Well, I remember there was an eight-man tag match at Lake Placid, New York. And it was George the Animal Steel and Coco Beware, a little uh, black athlete who was very talented, and Brian and I. And at the end of the match, all four of us had those doggone masks on, as if, you know, nobody could figure out who, who was who, because Brian and I had our yellow and black tights on. And there was a black guy. And, and then, yeah, there's a black guy doing the bird in the middle, and then George the Animal Steel had the mask up eating the, uh, the turnbuckle. turnbuckle. Oh. <laughs> you know, you know with, Jim, one of the nicest like, guys ever, by the way, George Animal Steel, terrifically nice man. Really? Just a great – he's a math teacher, isn't he? Well, he was also a great high school football coach yeah. in uh, yep. Michigan. Yep. Yeah, nice guy. He's really good. down in Florida now. Yep, I just talked to him Did about you? probably th- three months ago. Jim Myers, great, great guy. Just yep. a great guy. Sorry, Doc, what were you going to say? I was going to say I mean, when, when Don confronted you with that, when he confronted you with uh, that behavior – you 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 came very you had you put you put on you put on the the you were right back at he almost came across the table he he almost came he said he says that's not true that never happened he just about he came so close because you realized I saw it in your eyes that that never happened that never happened but I was just I was I was just being Gene Okerlund for a moment that's all I was being I was just I was accusing you of of some illegal behavior he was reaching for a chair he was the greatest too Gene Okerlund I I see him down in Florida and and you know he's had some uh, real health issues in the last five ten years but uh, this guy was so good i mean marty o'neill was marty, marty. O'Neill. there was no other marty o'neill marty. but when uh, when gene took over he was so good i mean at remembering uh and and giving uh the the the, the wrestler the opportunity to you know he'd feed him real good and bang and away to go and and that's why he he's considered the best yeah has been the best for yeah. 35 years. Great He's, part of it. And, and and a lot of the new guys, that's, they don't do that part well either. You know, when you guys would get It's all scripted, it, Tom. Yeah, it's all scripted. It's, you guys were you just... You have to memorize it. And I, one of the things that I do remember, let's say I'm seven, eight years old, nine years old or whatever. Well, I couldn't have been nine because I had, yeah, I didn't even see my grandfather for a long time, but I was like seven or eight years old. And I would get all frustrated and say to my grandpa... You know, when they're going to tag off, they get so close and they just can't seem to quite tag <laughs> off. You know, I was falling for it, hook, line, and sinker. I'm a little kid. I would get so frustrated. It's like, just reach out a little farther. <laughs> you know, my mom. Alligator arm. My, my mom and dad wouldn't let me watch wrestling. I, I remember my first exposure. My dad was in the Navy and we were down in Memphis, Tennessee, in a little town called Frazier. And they had a great 
little wrestling show over there, and oh, they, yeah. had a, they had a fellow who was from Minnesota. His name was Billy Wicks. He was the great babyface, and then they had the arch villain was a fellow by the name of Sputnik Monroe, who was, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and, and, and Sputnik it was Monroe. was 1957. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Very famous He was incredible. <laughs> but my mom and dad wouldn't let me. They said, no, Jim, uh, too much violence, and it's uh, portrayed violence. We don't want you to watch. So they'd turn on Lawrence Welk. Right. Well, in 1979, I, I left the AWA, went down to North Carolina to work for the Mid-Atlantic. So I'm in the ring, and this is probably my second week, and none other who was refereeing was Sputnik Monroe. Sputnik Monroe. So <laughs> as he was giving us the instructions, I was saying, 1959, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, you and Billy Wicks in the middle of the ring. And he looked at me like that, and he didn't talk to me the rest of the night. <laughs> But I love that. How do you come up with Monroe after Sputnik? You know, Vladimir. You know, yeah. Sputnik, Sputnik must have been Monroe. the thing. And no one heard Monroe. After Sputnik, yeah. you were, people would be so enraged and so infuriated by that insult. That Well, you know, he, he had <laughs> peroxide gray hair, and then he had a black strip down the middle. So he, he almost looked like a skunk. But, uh, <laughs> and, Negative. And, and he skunk. was a huge heel for... Decades down. He made heels. a lot of money. The heels were the greatest. I mean, that's, well, that's not necessarily true because it's just a, playing the the parts. Everybody had their part. It was just it was just terrific to watch the entire thing. I miss it a lot. I, Jim and I were just talking about the fact the last time we saw one another was when Jesse was running for, for mayor of Brooklyn Park. Yeah, that's right. He was running for mayor of Brooklyn Park, and we were at Edinburgh Golf Course. Alex wants something from Mom. Where are you going? Oh, well, here we go. Anyway, so, so Jesse had called me, and he called Scott Studwell, and sure. he, it was Studwell, you, and me. And he called us, uh, you know, come on out and endorse me out at, uh, we're going to be at Edinburgh, come on out there. And so Scott did his bit, and you did your bit, and then I came up and, you know, and I give it the, and the next mayor of Brooklyn Park, ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Ventura. First question, well, what do you buy? think about the building we're in right now, this golf course that was funded by the taxpayers here at Brooklyn Park? What do you think of the place? He goes, we should have never bought it. <laughs> I said, I just endorsed a guy that says bought it. <laughs> so this is all kind of your fault. It was my <laughs> fault. You're absolutely right about that. Now and now he, he will not talk to me anymore. I can't imagine why. I don't he think he listens to the show, show, I'm guessing. <laughs> so he could rip the piss out of everybody else, but you rip him, and that's just like, oh, my God, it's the mortal sin. Did you happen to that's read his right. latest book? On the Kennedy assassination? No. Well, it's funny because there was a period of time in the 80s or so that, see, when I was going to college at the U in the late Mm -hmm. 60s, I went to uh, a seminar by Mark Lane, who was the attorney who represented Lee Harvey Oswald in the Warren Commission. Rushed to judgment. Exactly. And he had the movie. So I watched that night. I became very... Very interested, and over the course of 30 years, I probably read 50, 60 books Mm -hmm. on it. So Jesse and I were at a seminar on the Kennedy assassination a long time ago. But I just wanted to say this. His book has got a a lot of very substantiated facts concerning the assassination. And I thought it was – matter of fact, I tried to – I had a card with his wife. He never gives out his telephone number, but Terry gave me her number. And this was years ago. 
and I went through everything. I just wanted to call her right. to compliment him because I thought the book was mm-hmm. well done. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't find the card, so. And, and now he's down in Mexico, so we probably won't see him for a year. Who in the hell is going to call him that he won't go out and give out his phone number? Who's going to call you? Well, oh, I don't want any calls from the president or anything like that. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, this was part of a, a parish deal out in uh, St. Jude's of the Lake. It was part of an auction that we had become a part of, and it was a progressive dinner. Oh, and yeah, it was really yeah. well done, and, and we had a big limousine, and everybody would go to different houses and have a little bit to eat and a little bit to drink. So finally, at the end of the night, we're six blocks from Jesse's place out in Pine Tree. So I said, you know, when I had a snootful, I said, you know, why <laughs> let's jump in the let's jump in the limo and we'll go over and we'll, you know, get Jesse. Sure. So the limo pulls up and I ring the bell and all of a sudden Jesse gets on there and he says, Hello. I says, Jesse, it's Brunzi. What do you want? I says, Well I'm He said, What do you want? Yeah, that's what he said. So what a great I, guy. I said, Jesse, I said what do you want? I said I'm with some a group. There's four couples here that were involved in a progressive dinner for a fundraiser for St. Jude's of the Lake in Montemita. And I said, I, I haven't seen you for a little bit. And I just said, you know, as long as we're so close, we might as well come over and see you. And he's got a great big gated right, place, you know, right. with a lot. So all of a sudden, he gets back on the intercom and he says, Brunzi, he says, my back's hurt. So I'm going to send Terry out. So Terry comes out and talks to me. And my wife, Mary. In the middle of winter. Yeah. No, it was, it, was in, it was in the summer. But I thought, Jesus, Jesse, why didn't you just come out? I know. What is God the sake? big deal? Come out and talk. He just has gotten so weird. And it was that damn governorship that made him so nuts. He wasn't that bad before the governor thing happened. But as soon as he became governor, he went kind of goofy. He and I used to get along. I mean, Catherine and, and Terry used to hang out once in a while, go to lunch and whatever. We did. But as soon as he became governor, he just got really bizarre like that. Wouldn't come out. What do you want? You know, come on. I know. And it's it's too bad because Jesse, I, I mean, in, in the professional wrestling business, he was so good at promoting himself yes. through his – because he actually believed everything he said about himself. He did. <laughs> he did. He did. Right. And, no, you're absolutely right. And to be honest, and I'm sure he might agree, maybe not with me, but – he wasn't that very good athletically in the ring. He was sort no. of clumsy. Better commentator. He's a yes, great he was a great commentator. He, was, he made yeah. a lot of guys look good at, yep. through his verbiage, and he yep. was great. But as far as being in the ring, you I know, know he was a little tentative on getting you know hurt. Getting hurt. Yep. So you know, and and God bless him, he's done well for himself, and it's, it's just too bad that his ego uh, prevents him from having more friendships. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That's exactly the way I look at it. It's just too bad that it happened, and just. I don't know. I guess it's, he's not the only one that's ever happened to, and I guess it'll happen in the future. But I, I, like I said, we used to. His daughter Jade used to babysit for. Us. She used to babysit Andy and and our daughter Alex. So you know, we go pick her up because we he lived on, the, on that farm right out there on thir- County Road Thirty, mm-hmm. out in Maple Grove. I guess that still is. So we lived right down the road, about six seven miles. We'd come mm-hmm. and pick her up, and she'd babysit, and so we'd see Terry and Jesse, and it was a great deal. But. That was the deal. All of a sudden, it was, what do you want? It's like, what? Well, he's pretty much a loner now because yeah, I, I, I've, out in Vanus Heights now in White Bear, I, I go into various uh, establishments, and they'll say that Jesse came in by himself to yeah. the GNC and bought this, and then Jesse came into himself to work out, and then Jesse went came in by himself to 
get this and that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I sort of feel bad for him because I understand. there's not that many, you know, friendships. I'm, I'm sure he feels that no one understands him because yeah. no one understands him. <laughs> <laughs> it, might be, it might be a result of uh, closed head injuries. Maybe as a personality change well, as a result of you uh, getting your bell yeah. rung a couple times because, yeah. you know, you, you, know you, can get, you can get beat up a little bit when you're in the ring. Yeah. Well, we used to fly in a small plane that Vern Gagne had. It was a Navajo chieftain. It was a seven-passenger. And Bobby Heenan and I would sit in the back, and we were scared to death of these small planes. Jesus. You know, they, just, they had oh, yeah. a retired uh, Air Force pilot, and the son of a gun had, wouldn't deviate between two points. If there was a thunderstorm, he'd go right through the center oh, of it you know, to evade going through. So Bobby and I would drink this franzi of wine before the matches. <laughs> He'd have a box of wine, and we'd be, and then on the way back, it'd be vodka or rum. But then Jesse would sit up, and you know he'd always have his leg like this. Oh yeah. And I remember Bobby had a snoot full, and he leaned over at me, and he says, "Jimmy, he says, do you honestly believe that that young man right there could swim underwater and 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 tie two bombs together and get back without killing himself?" (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a pretty good point, actually. You know, it was one of those situations. Obviously, growing up in North Minneapolis, a lot of the wrestlers were either from Irondale, White Bear Lake, Robbinsdale, or North Minneapolis. That's where they all got. Well, Jesse was from South Minneapolis, yep. but but um, so I knew a lot of the guys growing up. Like, like I miss Mike Hegstrand a lot. He was just what a goofball. I know it. He used to sit and argue with Catherine. It was just they'd argue politics. It was hilarious. But I, you know, but a lot of guys like that. I mean, all these guys died so young. Did they know it? I mean, at some point, everybody saw it coming, didn't they? Well, here's the problem, and 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 I fault um, Vince with this a little bit is that first of all, when you worked for the WWF back in the early '80s, it wasn't like any other territory. Mm-hmm. There was 26 territories before. Vince took over. Then actually, he was the only one. You know, they had, uh, you know, Ted Turner's a little bit in the right, late 80s right. and 90s. But what Vince did, he had 60 fellows working for him. He wrestled, they, we would wrestle 27 days a month. Oh, God. And I have, and this was on for three years straight. And we'd be on the road for, I remember one time we went 40 straight days without a day off. So, and it's not, it's not close to each other. I mean, we had I, I had almost a million miles on Northwest alone, yeah. and you'd start off in in uh, Houston, and then you go up to Vancouver, and then you go right down the uh, the West Coast, and then you'd go from uh, San Diego to Arizona, and then you go all the way out to Maine, and then you nice. go crisscross, and and oh, this went God. on. So really? what happened was, a lot of the guys like to party, they like to drink. And a lot of the guys wanted to impress Vince, so they took steroids. So steroids gives you – I took steroids off and on for 20 years. I never never tested positive either, so I don't know. Maybe the testing wasn't right, but uh, I I took what they call a clinical dose. I'd take it for like six weeks and then be off of it for six weeks. I did injections and orals, and, and very. I, it scared me because I know how you feel with it. You become uh, very aggressive. Yeah. And uh, what happened was that the wrestlers who took steroids over a period of time, you develop little muscle tears, and then you can get injured, mm. and these injuries sort of mass themselves because of the steroids. Yeah. So then, what happens? 
you have the schedule. You don't dare say to Vince, geez, I'm hurt. I can't, I can't right. wrestle. So then you get painkillers. So then you take painkillers, and then you're mixing booze, uh, steroids, and painkillers. Well, then you can't sleep at night. And then they throw in a little cocaine, too, which was oh, very yeah, prevalent in the 80s That's to keep no it going. It. So then they started throwing in uh, muscle relaxants and tranquilizers <laughs> and sleeping pills. Doc, how are we so, doing so far? <laughs> so then... <laughs> like a speedball. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. yeah so like Michael and that's, Jackson. And that's what happened. That's why so many of these guys, you know, God bless them, Kurt Henning. Kurt, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, there was, matter of fact, I almost brought this over today. I was looking through some memorabilia, and I have this, uh, this little dog. <laughs> it's a dog okay. staring. She's staring at him. She's <laughs> under the what table are you doing? staring. Every year we get a letter Bella. from uh, Vince McMahon <laughs> saying that if you have a drug problem or an alcohol problem, oh, really? we will uh, pay for your full uh, treatment. Because he had so many guys die, and it yeah, was a direct relationship because they were supposed to be policing. But I, the, what I fault Vince for so much, even though he did have drug testing, he never had a fellow come up there and say, if you take this drug and mix it with this drug and mix it with alcohol, this is what's going to happen to you. Right. That's, that's what happened to so many of them. Mike died at, what, 42, I think he was, when he oh. died down in, down in Florida. Kurt wasn't much older than that, was he? No. He was about... And then Boss Man, Ray Trailer, and the, uh, there was... A lot of the guys. I mean, lots of... And I, we used to go up to the Iron Horse and Crystal. Oh, yeah. And hang out with those guys. And it was, uh, you know, the paddock, the Iron Horse, or whatever. And it was really interesting. What? Are we breaking? Well, no. Are we getting started? Jim, are you, okay. are you worried at all? At, I, did you see uh, League of Denial? Yes, uh, I did. And uh, the close head injuries and the um, the dangers of repeated head injury and concussion. Are you worried about that for you and the rest of the professionals? Well, my wife is really concerned because you know she. I, I, I showed her this article about you know how much money that the NFL's put in, like five hundred and seventy-five, you know, million or whatever it was. And when you look at some of the guys right now, Vern Gagne, Alzheimer's. Um, Red Bastine died of Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mad Dog Vachon uh, died of Alzheimer's. Nick Bockwinkle has got dementia now. Oh. So many of the fellows of my era that, you know, and I had a- about 5,000 matches in 28 years. And if you if you count that I probably threw at least one drop kick in every match, I was falling to the ground, um, you know, six feet or better every night. And hitting my head or hitting my shoulder, and and actually, I don't have too uh, good uh, many things to look forward to because my dad died of Alzheimer's, and both of his sisters died of Parkinson. So, you know that that is a, a worrying thing because uh, although now I, I I think you're having the wrestlers that you see in the WWE. I don't think their careers are going to last 20 years. No, I they're agree. They're so huge they're now. Too, yeah. Yeah. Well, that and the fact they're making so much money, hopefully they'll save it mm-hmm. and invest it and be able to do something else because it's funny, and I was going to mention this to you, that out of all the guys that were in my air, and I'm talking about promoters too, none of them uh, were able to retire off their earnings. Oh, no, no, no. That, the closest one would be Jesse, but then he had... You know, he yep. had a couple shows, and he had a couple yeah. books, and he was a governor. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that – and, and Jesse did save his money, which was great. But, I mean, there's a uh, – you know, all of a sudden, you know, when I quit wrestling, I was 50 years old. 
And I thought, what the hell am I going to do now? You quit at 50? How old are you now? I'll be 65 uh, Honest to God, you look great. Well, I've taken a lot of supplements. Along with the steroids. Okay, no. <laughs> and the alcohol. And the alcohol. So you were an athlete until you were 50. Yes. Well, Man, he, what he, other sport is like that? Well, Ric Flair, he's he's 65, God. and he is still oh. wrestling. He is still wrestling. But oh. he has, he has other consequences. I made a mistake of calling Bobby Heenan. Instead of the and brain, I called him the, the weasel. Yes. On the oh, air. God. I called him Bobby the Weasel Heenan. Oh, God. And he turned around on the air and said, I'll snap your neck like a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Don? We go to a commercial break and <laughs> we just hug. <laughs> people, people ask me who the greatest personality in, in my era was. And Bobby Heenan was what I by far the Easy. best. Yep. He, he, he gave the people night after night everything they wanted. He was incredible in the ring. He was so unselfish, and look at all the guys that he managed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was incredible, and and he it was so great at talking. You know, he only had an eighth grade education, and now I don't know if you know this, but he had uh, oral surgery, oral cancer, and he lost his whole lower jaw. This has been five oh, years ago, and he's fed through a tube, and he can't talk. Jeez, oh, and it's so sad to see him because there was nobody quicker. You know, and, and he used to drink all the time. He was a, a, and he never got drunk. And I remember a short little story. We're coming back from Denver. We wrestled in Denver on Friday night. We take the early uh, flight home. We get back to Minneapolis at nine thirty or something, and then we had to drive over to WTC, WTCN and do TV. Oh, TCN. So yeah. Vernon Wally would sit there at this desk, and they had all the the promos and the the matches that were going to be taped. So Bobby wanted to see. You know where his guys were going to be. So Bobby leans over uh, Vern and Wally, and all of a sudden, Vern looks up at him and he says, "Damn you, Heenan! You've been drinking." And Bobby looked at him and he says, "You can't smell vodka." <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can. <laughs> While the flakes keep dropping, so do the clips. On this episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Great clips this week from Eric Rivenis, Mike Kaplan, and Jumpin' Jim Brunzel. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next week. I'm a soul.